You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello and welcome to the Black Experience Hour. This is a 60-minute weekly program bringing you news from a variety of sources. This is being recorded on the 7th of October for the listening week that begins the 8th. Your reader's name is Susan Shirey. Our first article is from theroot.com. It was posted on the 7th, written by Merjani Rawls. Philadelphia mayor apologizes for decades of horrible experiments conducted on black inmates and others. The city allowed Dr. Albert Kligman to conduct experiments on over 300 black inmates at Holmesburg Prison. Philadelphia Mayor Jim Kinney and the city have formally apologized for the terrible medical experiments conducted at Holmesburg Prison on primarily black inmates from 1951 to 1974. Many activists had come together and called on the city to apologize after the University of Pennsylvania had already done so last year, according to NBC News. Kinney also wanted to highlight the role medical racism plays throughout United States history, as well as the impact of trauma that's been a burden for many generations of black people to carry. This quote from NBC News, Without excuse, we formally and officially extend a sincere apology to those who were subjected to this inhumane and horrific abuse. We are also sorry it took far too long to hear these words. To the families and loved ones across generations who have been impacted by this deplorable chapter in our city's history, we are hopeful this formal apology brings you at least a small measure of closure. End quote. For more than 20 years, city officials in, pardon me, in Philadelphia gave Dr. Albert Kligman and the University of Pennsylvania the green light to experiment on black inmates awaiting bail at Holmesburg Prison. About 300 inmates were said to have been exposed to various viruses, fungi, asbestos, and pharmaceuticals. Even a component of Agent Orange a drug used in chemical warfare, was tested in some experiments. NBC News states the, that many former inmates had lifelong scars and health issues from the experiments. Kligman died in 2010. A group of inmates filed a lawsuit against the university and Kligman in 2000 that was thrown out two years later because of the statute of limitations. When the University of Pennsylvania made its apology, they also took Kligman's name off some honorifics like an annual lecture series and a, professors, pardon me, a professorship. A defense attorney for one of the activists involved in the effort, Michael Cord, was glad to see the city promptly issue an apology. This following quote is from the Philadelphia Tribune. I think they mean Tribune, that's a typo but I'm not sure they say Philadelphia tribute here. It is one of the best, if not the best, apologies I've ever seen in my entire life, said Cord during a phone interview. I read it at least five times to see if there were any holes in it. For the mayor to get into the details of precisely what he was apologizing for, I was pleasantly surprised and incredibly shocked. Court also said the group was not after money or reparations. They want a written apology from all branches of the Philadelphia government and an, pardon me, and an unconditional promise that something like this will never happen in their incarceration systems again. Cord said, We want it to be clear to the mayor and to the public. This is not a money grab for us. Those who fail to understand history will fail by repeating history. That is why we are doing this thing, because with mass incarceration going on today, this could happen again, and it could affect even more people. 
The following article comes from CPR News, Colorado Public Radio, written by Elaine Tassie, published on October 5th. As the reparations debate continues nationally, some Denver organizations are stepping up now. Rese Jones is walking around Teeley's, her three-year-old tea shop in Denver's historically Black Five Points neighborhood. Soft jazz plays in the main seating area with about ten tables, and in the basement is a bookstore with some hard-to-find titles by black authors. She started the tea shop about six months before the pandemic began because she had fond memories of being served hot tea on a tray by her mother when she got sick as a child, and she enjoyed when her grandmother added orange juice to a cup of hot tea. But while the shop is in many ways a testament to the past, there is no hint nestled among the soft decor that the seed money Jones used to reopen it emerged from one of the darkest episodes in the world and U.S. history, slavery. Jones is among several black business owners in Denver who have recently received grants from groups raising private funds to pay reparations for the centuries of abuse of blacks forced into slavery. Jones decided to launch her own shop after falling in love with a tea shop a friend of hers owns in Lakewood, where the tea leaves are on display. Jones has her tea leaves in clear canisters behind the counter so other people can see how different they are. I wanted the tea to be visible so that you see the colors. You see the blacks, you see the green teas, you see some blends that have other things in them. She said she is always adding to her collection of tea-specific accoutrements that include a condiment spoon, specially small-sized for additional, or pardon me, specially small-sized for little additions of sugar, and glass plates with frosted designs on which to serve cucumber sandwiches, some of them given to her by customers. A lot of the collection that we have in the shop comes from customers who say, oh, I have this set of china, or I have this silver, and would you like it? The shop is a repository of her memories, including pictures of her grandmother, who also gave her some dishes when she downsized from a house to an apartment. Jones received an $8,500 reparations grant to open the shop, one of several that have been distribu distributed. Pardon me. It kind of reshapes your perspective on your family history and family past. Among those who have given to the fund is 63-year-old Tad Kelly, a Harvard-educated private equity investor in Denver, who recently learned of his family's slave-owning past and emerged determined to try and right the wrongs in whatever small way that he can. Kelly said that in 2019, when he was helping his aunt write up a family booklet with genealogical history, he came across a notation in her rough draft that eventually led him to a revelation. He is the great-great-great-great-grandson on his mother's side of an enslaver named John Dougherty, who was born in the late 1700s and died around 1860. He said coming across that was a game-changer. He explained, it was a heart-stopping moment because I just didn't know that part of the family history, and when you learn of a fact that I consider very, very significant that you had been previously unaware of, it kind of reshapes your perspective on your family history and your family past. Kelly was so reshaped that within two years he found a well-known self-taught genealogist, Sharon Morgan, and the two of them took a road trip to the site of the former plantation. Together they spent three days in Liberty, going through slave schedules and marriage, birth, and death certificates in the local archives. After that, they explored the cemetery where the enslaved people were buried. A 
According to Morgan, the trip was a success. She was able to find some living relatives of his, meaning descendants of Dougherty's, who were black. During slavery, many enslavers raped the enslaved women and then enslaved the children coming from the rapes. Morgan was able to find one such woman and her children. She got their names and contact information, and Tad Kelly has cautiously, respectfully reached out to them to have what could be a very awkward and sensitive conversation and is currently awaiting a reply. There's no guarantee that the folks they found will have any interest in talking to him. According to Morgan, it could go either way, but it's up to Tad Kelly to handle it. I do the research work, and then I hand it off to the person who is my client, said Morgan. I will advise them, and I can get involved if I have to, but I try not to, because part of the reparation is that this is something you need to do for yourself. I don't want to be intrusive in that, because that's part of the healing process. It's like, you need to do certain things that I can't do for you. In the meantime, Kelly decided he needed to do more than just help fund a memorial at the cemetery and wait to hear from his prospective relative. He returned with the idea of funding reparations grants like the one Rese Jones has received because the trip and the knowledge he gained left him forever changed. Kelly said, I think once you learn about the history here and some of the facts, I just don't think that you can see the world the same way ever again. We have to be made whole in every aspect. There are several organizations that do precisely that kind of work. One of them is BRIC, stands for Black Resilience in Colorado, a nonprofit organization that officially opened on Juneteenth of 2020. It's run by LaDon Sullivan, who said the organization has already given out $2 million in grants to 136 Black-led and or Black-serving nonprofits in the greater Denver metro area, including the Center for African American Health and the Park Hill Pirates, which is a youth football and cheer organization that's been around for 60 years. They don't limit themselves to reparations-oriented funding as a way to make amends for slavery, but one of their six areas of funding is racial justice. Sullivan said in a recent interview, we really try to get away from compartmentalizing. We are whole people, so in order to experience real equity, real reparations, we have to be made whole in every aspect. Sullivan said that, pardon me, Sullivan said that some white donors expressed interest in donating due to their status as descendants of enslavers. At the same time, she said, we also have more traditional philanthropic institutions, foundations that are led by white people whose donations are also accepted without putting slavery reparations at the forefront. We're supporting black-led and black-serving nonprofit organizations. We are supporting and providing capacity-building services, programs, and assistance, said Sullivan, no one is telling us what our issues are. We are self-identifying our issues, and we are deciding how we want to address them. She said the average grant given out by BRIC ranges from $10,000 to $16,000, with the maximum being $25,000. Once the grant is given, the recipient organization then has the latitude to figure out how best to apply it, if you need to totally flip the script and do something different because it's what the community demands and needs, you have the latitude to do that and we want to get out of the way, said Sullivan. The grant applications, she said, can be enhanced visually if a person isn't great with words. We want our applicants to have as much space as they need to tell their story, so we have incorporated an option for them to provide a video about their work. Why it's important is because typically folks are tied to the words that are written on the page. That puts some potential recipients at a disadvantage. 
Some don't have paid staff. They're doing this literally from their heart and soul, she said. With the video option, it's open to them to really share from their voice what they're doing, how they're doing it, and who's being impacted by their work. We want to look forward with what we're doing. Another organization offering reparations grants is the Denver Black Reparations Council. That was the organization from which Reese Jones received a grant. Before the pandemic began, the council was in its embryonic state. Its future members were customers of her shop. That's how she found out about the grant that she got in September of 2020. She used it to hire part-timers and to get current on rent and utilities. Arthur McFarlane II, chairman of the Denver Black Reparations Council, said funding is just one part of what they want to do. In addition to providing money so organizations like Jones can thrive, he said building community is also a goal. McFarlane said, in addition to soliciting dollars from individuals, we would like to be able to open up the conversation that would really get people talking about reparations on the same page, going in the same direction about some of the same topics. It's not just about slavery. Some of the things that are our, pardon me, that are our priorities are going to be building economic strength and generational wealth, preserving and expanding black history and culture and knowledge. This is not an issue of, strictly speaking, looking backward. We want to look forward with what we're doing, he said. People interested in receiving grant funding from either BRIC or DBRC can apply through the Denver Foundation now. The application cycle for the next round of funding opened in early September and it is set to close October 18th. In addition to BRIC and DBRC, other organizations facilitating similar donations through the Denver Foundation include Reparations Circle Denver, whose mission is to rebuild institutions, religions, languages, and traditions within the black community of the Denver metro area, as well as throughout the state of Colorado and beyond that were destroyed during the enslavement of African and African-descendant people, and to facilitate the reestablishment of black institutions that were destroyed by the oppression that was imposed post-slavery. Their awards usually between 2,500 and 7,500, are given in the spring and the fall, totaling $50,000 each cycle. Another organization, Reparations for Slavery, with the number four, gives reparations grants and has educational guides on how to have conversations around reparations, as well as a primer on H.R. 40, the federal bill that would open a national conversation on reparations. Additionally, Coming to the Table, an organization to which both Tad Kelly and Sharon Morgan belong, provides classes on doing healing work on racial repair. As Kelly awaits hearing from the rel pardon me, as Kelly awaits hearing from the relatives, he and genealogist Sharon Morgan found during the trip to Liberty, Missouri, he continues to make donations through reparations for slavery that will benefit black people as a way to begin to create a balance between people with advantages like his and people who hadn't received the same privileges. It's the legacy of slavery that really forms the foundation of why we have in this country today, particularly the racial wealth gap, which is the source of so much of the difference in opportunity to white people versus people of color, he said. Next article comes from the New York Times book review section. This is a nonfiction titled Half American by the historian Matthew F. Delmont. Title of the article, How World War II Looked to African Americans. Half American by the historian Matthew F. Delmont 
provides a fresh account of the war, stressing the particular challenges from segregation to racist violence confronted by black service members. This article is written by Jennifer Salai and it was posted October 5th. At the time, it should have been an easy argument to make. World War II was a total war, requiring an enormous mobilization of resources. Therefore, anything impeding the efficient deployment of American forces had to be renounced, including the military's policy of segregation, and most glaringly, the brutal Jim Crow regime in the South. But as Matthew F. Delmont details in Half American, his new book about African Americans and World War II, even the bluntest appeals to the national interest couldn't get some white Americans to budge. Although President Franklin D. Roosevelt issued an executive order to desegregate private defense contractors, he would continue to resist desegregating the military. This was despite the obvious costs. Redundant buildings continued to be built and maintained. Troop transportation continued to be a logistical nightmare. Racist violence in the South meant that even something as basic as the homeland safety of black soldiers couldn't be secured. As one of these soldiers put in a letter to the NAACP, the mighty federal government seemed to cower before local sheriffs and lynch mobs, the petty tyrants of Jim Crow. Quoting the letter, it's odd that the U.S. government would let a small town of a few thousand people rule them like that. Delmont, an historian at Dartmouth, whose previous books include Why Busing Failed from 2016, points out how much, oh, pardon me, how so much of World War II looks different when viewed from the African-American perspective, even the start date. For many black Americans, the real war began several years before Pearl Harbor with Mussolini's invasion of Ethiopia in October of 1935. Half American begins with a chapter on the Abraham Lincoln Brigade, an integrated battalion of Americans who fought against Franco's forces in the Spanish Civil War. In August of 1936, a headline in the Chicago Defender, one of the country's black newspapers, announced this. World War seen as deuce, Hitler and fascists in war-torn Spain. This turns out to be a running theme in Delmont's book. The prescience with which black Americans identified the fascist threat, while much of the United States was still in an isolationist mood. Hitler himself had taken explicit inspiration from American race laws. Langston Hughes said in 1937, We Negroes in America do not have to be told what fascism is in action. We know. Or, as he put it in his poem, Love Letter from Spain, Fascists is Jim Crow peoples, honey. More than one million black Americans would go on to serve in World War II, many of them buoyed by what became known as the Double Victory Campaign, Double V for short, pushing for victory over fascism abroad and over white supremacy at home. Parentheses, Delmont mentions anti-war sentiment among black Americans too, but he doesn't spend much time on it in the book. The inspiration for Double V originated in a letter to the Pittsburgh Courier, the largest black newspaper in the country, from a black 26-year-old in Kansas named James Gratz Thompson. Pearl Harbor had just been attacked, and Thompson wondered what it could mean to fight for democracy on behalf of a country that continued to deny him his rights. Should I sacrifice my life to live half-American? Delmont is an energetic storyteller, giving a vibrant sense of his subject in all of its dimensions. He draws attention to the role played by black personnel in logistics, or what Time magazine called the miracle of supply. 
the vast challenge of getting the country's fighting forces everything they needed, from weapons to food. Such support, Delmont shows, was decisive. Without the black truck drivers and the supplies they delivered, Allied forces could not move, shoot, or eat, he writes. Even so, Half American conveys how recognition of black contributions to the war effort was often grudging. Eventually, the War Department enlisted Frank Capra to produce a film called The Negro Soldier in order to convince white troops that their fellow black troops deserved respect. Not that such programming amounted to anything like a moral reckoning. White officer candidates who took a class on leadership and the Negro soldier were assured by the course manual that such efforts were simply a matter of what need, was needed at the moment and nothing more. Quoting, the Army has no authority or intention to participate in social reform as such, but does view the problem as a matter of efficient troop utilization. If the national rhetoric was to be believed, all of that efficient troop utilization was supposed to be in the service of higher ideals. But soaring words about saving democracy seemed absurd next to the persistent pardon me, the persistence of the flagrantly anti-democratic Jim Crow. James Baldwin recalled how the people he knew in Harlem believed their relatives would in fact be better off serving overseas than being stationed in the South. He said, now, even if death, death should come, it would come with honor and without the complicity of their countrymen. Baldwin considered World War II to be a turning point for black Americans. To put it briefly and somewhat too simply, a certain hope died, a certain respect for white Americans faded, he wrote. The double standards of the good war were too glaring, the hypocrisies too stark. Upon their return, black veterans in uniform were still vulnerable to the depredations of racial violence so much so that loved ones would implore them to wear civilian attire so that they wouldn't be a target. Delmont doesn't skimp on such sobering stories explaining that he wants to provide a definitive history, but he also clearly sees the book as a chance to honor those black Americans who fought for the United States but never properly got their due. He quotes Robert P. Madison, a veteran of the segregated 92nd Infantry Division, which saw combat in Italy, recalling how he once leafed through a big book on World War II and couldn't find a single reference to any black service members. Madison said, We were a forgotten group of people. Adding something that Delmont seems to have taken to heart, I think we ought to show and represent everyone who fought in that war. Next article is an opinion piece from the Washington Post, which went up online on October 5th. It's written by Jonathan Capehart. Why black people feel Jackson's seat at the table is ours too. When you're black in America, you spend a lot of time counting firsts, the higher the first, the more we marvel and shake our heads at how long it took to happen. The higher the first, the more the person who achieved it comes to represent how we want the nation to see us. The latest vessel of our aspirations is Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson, the first black woman confirmed to the Supreme Court, pardon me, and the third black person ever to sit on its mahogany bench. And man, did she show up and turn pardon me, did she show up and show out during her first week at work? But the real test for her and for us comes in all the weeks that now follow. Jackson spoke up early during Monday's arguments in a case challenging the Clean Water Act, asking questions before half her colleagues did and within the first 10 minutes. On Tuesday, she took the facile reasoning about laws, quote, deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition that Justice Samuel A. Alito, Jr. used 
to help overturn Roe v. Wade and turned those into a sledgehammer against Alabama's gerrymandered congressional maps. Jackson's skillful questioning not only set legal Twitter aglow, it also became another item of pride for African Americans, especially black women. I love that Justice Jackson isn't doing the thing that a lot of black women are expected to do when we start a new job chock full of white folks, which is to be quiet and not make a fuss, to know our place, tweeted journalist Imani Gandhi. She went on, she's come out swinging and I love it. In moving remarks at a celebration at the Library of Congress a few hours after her court investiture on Friday, Jackson let the emotion flow right back. People from all walks of life approach me with what I can only describe as a profound sense of pride and what feels to me like renewed ownership, she said. I can see it in their eyes. I can hear it in their voices. They stare at me as if to say, Look at what we've done. Sitting in the audience, I felt those words in my bones, having both received and bestowed ones like them. You never forget how powerful such an interaction is. Jackson's tearful comments proved her a person of enormous humility about her achievement and boundless gratitude for the outpouring of support. But Jackson knows that bouquets today could turn into brickbats tomorrow. There is no doubt that I will have my share of pure bad luck, she said. Bad luck could come in many forms. I'm thinking particularly that it could manifest as other African Americans wondering why Jackson isn't as forthright as they want her to be on issues important to them. And she probably won't always be, so long as the law sometimes leads her as a justice to a place that doesn't align with her preference as a person. The worst outcome is that such judicial restraint could cause African Americans to question her blackness altogether. When you hit certain heights, it's bound to happen, and it will be painful. In the new Apple TV Plus documentary, Sydney, Oprah Winfrey recounts life-changing advice she received from revered black actor Sidney Portier. It was during a birthday party for Winfrey at the height of her reign as queen of daytime TV. After being at first beloved by black audiences, she eventually found herself bedeviled by accusations that she wasn't black enough. Portier, who went through the same swing in black public sentiment, gave Winfrey an insight she said guided her ever since. It's difficult when you're carrying other people's dreams, Winfrey recalled the actor pardon me, telling her, and so you have to hold on to the dream that's inside yourself and know that if you are true to that, that's really all that matters. That heavy load, a burden for anyone to carry, is only weightier when you're the first of your kind to crack the stratosphere. The last words of Jackson's Library of Congress speech showed that she relishes bearing our dreams. I have a seat at the table now, and I'm ready to work, she said to thunderous applause. In her first days on the bench, oh, pardon me, if her first days on the bench are any indicator, Jackson is wasting no time being heard and representing the best of us. It's our task to let her do it her own way. Our next article takes us back in time from the Washington Post's Retropolis section. This was posted October 1st, and it's written by Gillian Brockell. An angry mob broke into a jail looking for a black man, then freed him. He called himself Jerry. He was a skilled cabinet maker in Syracuse, New York, before he got a better paying job making wooden barrels. He was a light-skinned black man with reddish hair in his early 40s, and as far as anyone knew, he didn't have any family. But in the eyes of the law, his name was William Henry, and he was another man's property. 
on October 1, 1851, the struggle against slavery in the United States centered on this man's body, and his forceful liberation became a community holiday. Jerry Rescue Day, marked with poetry, song, and fundraising. Since 1843, Jerry's life had been marked by escape. First, he fled his enslavement in Missouri. He may have also narrowly avoided recapture in Chicago and Milwaukee, according to one account. During the winter of 1849 to 1850, he arrived in Syracuse, a city well known for its strong anti-slavery bent. Even with the high number of white and black abolitionist leaders and supporters living there, Jerry was still met with at least some racism from co-workers who saw him as competition. He also had a few run-ins with the law, getting arrested for theft and assault. It isn't clear how much truth there was to the charges. In any case, he was always soon released. In late 1850, Congress passed the Fugitive Slave Act, making escape from slavery a federal matter and requiring assistance from local officials in any state, including ones where slavery was illegal. Daniel Webster, a northern politician who supported the law, predicted a confrontation over its enforcement would happen in Syracuse, according to historian Angela F. Murphy, who wrote a book about the rescue. Murphy told the Washington Post, he gives this really thundering speech about how the fugitive slave law would be enforced even in Syracuse, he said even at the next National Anti-Slavery Convention which was set for October in Syracuse, it's going to be enforced, he said. As September gave way to October, the city was packed, not only with hundreds of abolitionists there for the convention, but also with thousands of farmers and their families in town for the county fair. Jerry was working through his lunch break when local police and federal marshals came to detain him. At first, he didn't resist, probably figuring it would go like his other arrests. Then they arrived at a federal commissioner's office, and he recognized a white neighbor of his former enslaver. Jerry had been sold in absentia, and the new owner had sent the neighbor up to collect his property. By this point, a lot of northern cities had, quote, vigilance committees, multiracial groups that kept an eye out for slave catchers. One of these committee members spotted Jerry on the way to the office and ran to the church where the convention was being held. Soon, church bells across the city were ringing to alert the whole town. As a crowd gathered outside the office, prominent abolitionists like Garrett Smith, Reverend Sam, pardon me, Samuel J. May, and Reverend Germain Wesley Logan, himself a fugitive slave, along with a handful of lawyers, pushed their way inside to aid Jerry at a hearing. There isn't much that they could have done, legally speaking, and most likely everyone knew it. Before the hearing could even get going, members of the Vigilance Committee made a first attempt to free Jerry, taking advantage of the chaotic and crowded room to push him outside. He ran down the street, still handcuffed. Authorities caught up to him, roughed him up, and tried to take him back to the hearing. A fight broke out between police and the crowd, both sides pulling on Jerry's body until his clothes were torn off. Eventually, police dragged him, bloodied, back into a cell where they added leg irons. The sight of the brutality, quote, actually turned some people into supporters of the move to rescue him, said Murphy. Many white residents at the time opposed slavery but preferred a gradual legal approach rather than immediate emancipation that almost by definition required violence or at least the threat of it. Jerry began to scream. He shouted. He begged for the crowd outside to help him. He was, quote, in a perfect rage, a fury of passion. May, the abolitionist and a Unitarian minister, recalled later, May was allowed in the cell to calm Jerry, which didn't work until May made it clear another attempt to free him was in the works. The hearing resumed at 5.30 p.m. 
Jerry's attorneys began raising objections to anything they could to slow it down. Outside, the sun was low in the sky, and the crowd had grown to thousands. Rocks began flying through the windows. After a rock flew past his head, the commissioner adjourned the hearing until the next morning. Still, the crowd did not disperse. It grew. Some arrived with weapons, others picked up an axe or iron rod from a nearby hardware store with an abolitionist owner. A battering ram appeared at 8.30 p.m. Someone shouted, Now! They smashed windows, rammed the doors, and pulled bricks right out of the building's walls. The marshals inside got off a shot or two, hitting no one, before basically giving up. No one was killed, though one marshal suffered a broken arm when he jumped out of a second-story window. Another, hiding inside the cell with the prisoner, opened the door and pushed Jerry out. The rescuers carried Jerry to a waiting carriage, which rushed, rushed pardon me, him out of town to a safe house, where his chains were removed. Soon he was on the Underground Railroad to Canada and safety. Though it hasn't been a feature of too many history textbooks, the Jerry Rescue was national news at the time. In general, Syracuse residents were happy about it, jokingly asking, Where's Jerry? as they passed one another on the street. More than a dozen organizers were eventually indicted, including Logan, who fled to Canada. He denied the charges and even said he would return to stand trial if authorities would promise not to send him back into slavery. Jerry Rescue Day became a feather in abolitionist Syracuse's cap. Residents had defied the Fugitive Slave Act and won, and the city still memorializes the incident with a statue. This mob, which broke into a jail to liberate rather than lynch, was not unique. Harriet Tubman herself helped storm a jail to free Charles Nall near Troy, New York, in 1860. In 1854 in Milwaukee, abolitionists stormed a jail and freed Joshua Glover, pardon me, Glover, a formerly enslaved man who had been living in nearby Racine for years. And in Boston that same year, thousands rioted after a failed attempt to free a young man named Anthony Burns. His forced return to Virginia solidified opposition to slavery for many Bostonians, including Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau. We went to bed one night old-fashioned, conservative, compromise union Whigs and waked up stark mad abolitionists, one observer wrote. Parentheses, Burns was later sold to abolitionists and freed. Usually the violence of the Civil War is said to have begun on April, April 12th, pardon me, 1861, with shots fired at Fort Sumter in South Carolina. But perhaps it really started with these battles in the North, where the fight for a man's freedom could not have been more literal. Next one's still reading from the Washington Post, their lifestyle section. This was posted October 2nd by Kim Belware. California makes it harder to use lyrics as evidence against rappers. David Kenner still remembers the lyrics prosecutors shared for the Los Angeles courtroom during the 1996 murder trial of his client Calvin Broadus, better known as the rapper Snoop Dogg. Because it's 187 on an undercover cop, a reference to California's penal code for murder, which came from Snoop Dogg's hit single Deep Cover, performed with Dr. Dre. It was the prosecution's way of inferring that Snoop Dogg's creative output indicated criminality and guilt, said Kenner. In reality, the song was recorded for the soundtrack of the 1992 crime thriller of the same name, in which Lawrence Fishburne stars as a police officer working undercover to bust a West Coast drug cartel. Kenner told the Washington Post it was baloney. Killing a cop was the theme of the movie. That's what they asked him to do in the recording. Snoop Dogg was acquitted, but researchers estimate that more than 500 cases over the past 30 years have shown prosecutors 
using rap lyrics against defendants at trial. Now California has become the first state to put guardrails on introducing a party's creative output, such as a rapper's lyrics or videos, into evidence during a criminal proceeding. Before allowing something like rap lyrics into evidence, judges must now ask, away from the jury, whether there is sufficient proof that the artistic expression is directly part of the criminal act on trial. Governor Gavin Newsom, Democrat on Friday, signed the Decriminalizing Artistic Expression Act into law during an online ceremony attended by generations of hip-hop artists that included Killer Mike, Too Short, Meek Mill, Sawati, E-40, and Ty Dolla Sign. California Assemblyman Reggie Jones-Sawyer, Democrat, the lead author of the legislation, said he was shocked when he learned via representatives in the recording industry that hundreds of people, almost entirely black and Latino men, were imprisoned mostly based on the evidence from their rap lyrics or status as a rapper. Jones-Sawyer said that where California leads on the issue, other states and federal legislation may finally follow. New York lawmakers have introduced a bill that goes further than California's by presuming at the outset that an artist's creative output is inadmissible unless, quote, clear and convincing proof can show otherwise. The Restoring Artistic Protection Act goes by rap was introduced this year at the federal level and is all but in oh, pardon me is all but identical to California's law. Jones Sawyer said by the governor signing this it's now a blueprint for how it can get passed in other legislatures and at the federal level. Newsom said California's entertainment industry makes the state's legislation a fitting example. Artists of all kinds should be able to create without the fear of unfair and prejudicial prosecution, said Newsom in a statement on Friday. Although California's law applies to all forms of artistic expression, including songs, dances, and the written word, it was crafted with rap in mind because of the significant research and numbers of instances from courtrooms across the country that show the genre is associated with stereotypes that tend to create unfair prejudice against the artist. A 2016 study by criminologist at the University of California at Irvine found that participants were more likely to perceive rap as threatening and literal compared with genres such as country. Participants were presented with the same lyrics, with one group told that the lyrics were to a country song and the other group told that the lyrics were from a rap song. They found lyrics more offensive, literal, and in need of regulation when they thought they were from a rap song. Tricia Rose, who specializes in African-American culture and politics at Brown University and is the author of 2008's The Hip-Hop Wars, What We Talk About When We Talk About Hip-Hop and Why It Matters, said bias against rap is linked to long-standing racist stereotypes of black people as violent, hypersexual, criminal, and unintelligent. Rose said, There's been a fixation and a strange desire for black people to perform that criminal identity in art and culture. The notion of racial authenticity is often attached to that fantasy, that fiction of black criminality. Rappers are only getting signed if they're taking up a more criminal persona, and fans of hip-hop, especially white fans, thinks that's what makes hip-hop effective. Researcher Eric Nielsen of the University of Richmond and his co-author, lawyer, and professor Andrea Dennis followed Rose's work for their 2019 book titled Rap on Trial, Race, Lyrics, and Guilt in America, the pair were among those who found the hundreds of cases where, pardon me, where rap lyrics were used against defendants. Nielsen said a more accurate estimate when sealed indictments, juvenile cases, and plea bargains are included 
is probably in the tens of thousands. Despite more attention to racial disparities in the criminal legal system, instances of bringing prejudicial and irrelevant rap lyrics into criminal proceedings have proliferated. It's insidious. He said it plays upon racial stereotypes to secure convictions when there might not be much else in the way of evidence. One case dating back to 2000 is the trial of McKinley Phillips, pardon me, that's McKinley Phipps Jr., better known as Mac Phipps, in New Orleans-based rapper, was set to perform at a club when a fight broke out, leading to the fatal shooting of 19-year-old Baron Victor Jr. Phipps's defense argued that there was no physical evidence linking him as the shooter, but prosecutors secured a conviction after misquoting and taking his lyrics out of context. This defendant who did this is the same defendant whose message is murder, murder, kill, kill, you F with me and you get a bullet in your brain, said prosecutor Bruce Deering during closing arguments. Phipps was sentenced to prison where he spent 20 years before he was granted clemency last year. HuffPost reported that five witnesses later recanted their testimony and said they never saw Phipps shoot anyone. More recently, rappers Young Thug and Gunna, whose names are Jeffrey Lamar Williams and Sergio Kitchens, respectively, were among 28 defendants arrested on gang-related charges under Georgia's racketeer-influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, which goes by RICO. Details from their music videos and lyrics were cited as evidence of their alleged criminality and supposed gang ties. Kitchen's lawyer, in a motion filed in May, called it intensely problematic that the state was citing lyrics in its allegations. The motion read, These lyrics are an artist's creative expression and not a literal recounting of facts and circumstances. Although California's law requires judges to consider the value of an artist's work against its potential to unfairly prejudice the jury before allowing it into evidence, Nielsen is not convinced that goes far enough. He said, That California prosecutors didn't even oppose the bill tells you all you need to know about how effective it is. This isn't really going to change a whole lot in California, and that's disappointing because the state is the worst offender of using rap as evidence. At the same time, Nielsen said, the law is symbolically important, and he hopes his prediction of it as minimally effective is disproved. Nielsen argues that there should be a shield law for rap similar to rape shield laws that limit how much the defense counsel can bring a victim's sexual history into evidence. With rap lyrics, there may be circumstances when they are relevant to the case and should be permitted, said Nielsen, but they shouldn't automatically be allowed into evidence with no thought to relevance. Given what's been studied about how rap conventions can be so inflammatory and prejudicial that lyrics can alter the outcome of a case, he said. If you don't need the rap lyrics because you have all the evidence, don't use them, he said. And if you need the rap lyrics because you don't have the evidence, don't charge them. Well, that leaves me with not quite enough time for another article, so I'm going to close this out a minute early today, a minute and a half early. But thank you so much for joining us for the Black Experience Hour. AINC programming is brought to you in part by Network for Good. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.